The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. This episode includes information about the murder of a child. Listener discretion is advised. A lifeless woman beside a burning barn. A boy abandoned in the snow by the side of the road. Three men killed in cold blood. Though these cases may sound disconnected, they would all turn out to be linked to one unlikely killer. When law enforcement identified the murderer, they would be shocked to learn just how close he was to his victims. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I walk you through the unusual case involving Eli Stutzman, a story spanning multiple states and several decades. This case begins in Apple Creek, Ohio, a small village of around 1,100 people located in Wayne County. Settled in 1817 by Scotch-Irish families, the original village was named Edinburgh. When railway expansion hit the area in 1854, a local landowner named the train stop on his land Apple Creek Station. By the 1870s, the rate of growth in both settlements caused structures to inch so close to one another that it was decided to combine them into one incorporated village known as Apple Creek. Today, Ohio is home to about 60,000 Amish, making it the largest Amish state in the country. Ohio's largest Amish population resides in nearby Holmes County. It is estimated the current population in that county is 42% Amish. If you're listening to this podcast, you'd likely be referred to as English, the term used to describe any non-Amish individual. To understand this case, it's important to know the basics of the Amish way of life. Here's the abridged version. Generally speaking, there are two orders of Amish, Old Order and New Order. Then there are subdivisions under the umbrella of Old and New Orders, such as Schwarzentruber Amish and Andy Weaver Amish. The Old Order Amish lead the most traditional lifestyle, with the use of modern technology being forbidden, including automobiles. Cars are only used in emergencies, and even then, the Amish are only permitted to be passengers. If you've ever visited Amish country, you've probably seen members of this order getting around in a horse and buggy. Within these orders, there are church districts or sects overseen by a bishop. Each district consists of 20 to 25 families. Population growth can be problematic in Amish communities due to contraception being prohibited. Though their practices may differ, Members of the Amish largely avoid integrating themselves into English culture and display unequivocal obedience to the church's teachings. Eli Stutzman was born into the Schwarzentruber Amish in Apple Creek. According to the website Amish America, this order falls on the more conservative end of the Old Order Amish spectrum. Inside Schwarzentruber homes, there is no electricity, in-home plumbing, or hot water. Without modern conveniences, it's essentially like living in the 1800s. The Amish lead simple lives, prescribed by tradition and reinforced by scripture. Eli E. Stutzman was born on September 28, 1950. His father, Eli Harvey Stutzman, was a pious man and a strict disciplinarian. His life was devoted to religion and he served as a high-ranking bishop in his family's church district. Residents in the community sometimes referred to Eli Sr. as one-hand Eli due to a farming accident when he was 18 that resulted in the amputation of several fingers. Eli Sr.'s wife, Susan Miller, had 14 children. Eli Jr. was the fourth youngest of the siblings, and he undoubtedly brought his family the most trouble. Though he had an early interest in horses, Eli Jr. hated farm work and often put up enough of a fuss that his father whipped him. In school, he was considered a bright child, though he struggled with a slight stutter. 
As young as age six or seven, Eli went out of his way to break the rules because he favored being the center of attention. When suspected of wrongdoing, he redirected the blame to other classmates. Eli Sr. deemed his young son a habitual liar and saw it as his duty to set him straight. According to the book Abandoned Prayers by Greg Olson, Eli Sr. was so strict because as a minister, he was under tremendous pressure to see that his children, more so than others, towed the line. His problem was the son named for him, a bright but rebellious boy who had an eye for horses, money, and the modern world. Eli Jr.'s behavior did not improve much as he got older. In his teens, he befriended a group of rebellious Amish boys who referred to themselves as the Wild Westerns. They frequented a Wayne County bar called the Dog House, known for being a popular hangout for Amish going through Rumspringa. Rumspringa is considered an Amish rite of passage. It commonly occurs between the ages of 14 and 16 and represents freedom to Amish youth. For most Amish, regardless of their family's order, this is a young person's first exposure to the English world. Restrictions are relaxed and rebellion often ensues. Drug and alcohol use is fairly common and Amish teens sow their wild oats during this time. By the end of Rumspringa, which can last up to two years, young people get to decide if they want to be baptized and remain in the Amish church or reject the Amish way of life. If they remain with the church, they are expected to marry between the ages of 18 and 22 and get their own property. If they decide to leave, Amish young adults are often shunned and not allowed to communicate with their family in any way. According to the website Amish America, around 80% of young people choose to return to their Amish communities. Courtship practices usually follow Rumspringa. In the interest of finding a potential spouse, Amish parents take turns supervising singings, the term used for co-ed gatherings held in barns. The idea of finding a mate can seem daunting in Amish culture. Young people receive no formal sexual education, and they often learn about sex by watching farm animals or discussing taboo topics with their peers. Amish girls were drawn to Eli Jr. because he was wild and quick-witted unlike other Amish boys who were very by-the-book about rules. But Eli never seemed to reciprocate attention from girls until he met 16-year-old Ida Gingrich one night at a singing. Ida was also Schwarzentruber Amish, though her family lived in a different church district than the Stutzmans. The hairstyle traditionally worn by Schwarzentruber girls was rolled under, pulled back, and hidden beneath a bonnet. Scripture dictated that only husbands were permitted to see a female member's hair. As common as her appearance may have been, Ida held Eli's interest. They dated for four years. During their courtship, Eli's trouble at home only seemed to get worse. To escape the volatile relationship with his father, Eli sought independence. In the fall of 1971, Eli began working as a schoolteacher at the Maple Grove School, a one-room schoolhouse in the area. Education within his order only went up to the 8th grade. After that, young adults were expected to work on the family farm. With his limited education, Eli earned $180 a week teaching Amish children. It was around this time that Eli, then 21, moved out of his parents' farmhouse. He headed across the road to the farm of an old order Amishman named Mose Keim. He and his wife, Ada, had heard about the unrest between the father and son and wanted to help improve Eli's situation. The church Keim belonged to was less restrictive, so Eli celebrated his newfound freedom by cutting his hair and decorating the dashboard of his buggy. Living with the Kimes seemed to empower Eli. He went to the school board and requested a raise in pay. Once Eli Sr. caught wind of this, he approached the school board to talk them out of the raise. In fact, he demanded his son's meager salary go directly to him. I've always been an early morning riser, but my energy starts to fade in the afternoon. Lately, I've been using ginger essential oil 
to keep me alert and on task to close out my workday. Usually, I just add a few drops to my diffuser, but sometimes I put a small amount on my neck, and it smells so good. Ginger is an all-natural essential oil that harnesses the natural healing properties of ginger, and you can use it to relieve stress or muscle tension after a workout or just to keep you alert during the day or a long commute. Here's what sets ginger essential oil apart from the others. It's ready to use right out of the bottle because it's pre-mixed with jojoba and evening primrose carrier oils, so it's completely safe to put directly on your skin. Plus, their special extraction process helps remove micro impurities for a higher purity ginger oil. You can feel good about using ginger essential oil that's ginger with two J's because it's cruelty-free and eco-friendly. Take it from me, you need ginger essential oil too. And right now, I have an amazing deal to get you started. 20% off your first purchase, but you have to go to ginger.us slash murderish. That's J-I-N-J-E-R dot U-S slash murderish. Don't wait. Ginger with two J's dot U-S slash murderish. Now more than ever, I think we all feel the pressure of work, family, and just adulting every day. For me, going through the pandemic with a first grader was such a struggle. But relief is just a text or a call away with Talkspace. With Talkspace, you can get connected with a licensed therapist and you don't even have to leave your house. Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform and I can see why. They have thousands of licensed therapists who you can connect with over text message or live video calls and they can help you through depression, anxiety, relationship struggles, and so much more. Talking to someone when you're struggling is so therapeutic, but sometimes getting out of the house is the hardest part. I love how that difficult step has been eliminated with Talkspace and that I can send unlimited messages to my dedicated therapist. Talkspace can be such a great tool for mostly anyone, especially with the holidays approaching because it's such a hard time for a lot of people. If you need a little support to help you through the end of the year or want to start building towards a better upcoming year, Talkspace is here to help. Match with a licensed therapist when you go to Talkspace.com and get $100 off your first month with the promo code MURDERISH. That's $100 off when you use code MURDERISH at Talkspace.com. To Eli Sr., the mere request for more money signified his son becoming more worldly and defying the church's teachings. On a regular basis, he tried to convince his son to move back home where he could control him. Around this time, there was a noticeable change in Eli's health. In February of 1972, Mose Kime found him sobbing in a barn. The next day, while rushing to get dressed for a date with Ida, Eli collapsed on a staircase inside the Kime house. The Amish are skeptical of Western medicine. Summoning a doctor for a house call is seen as a last resort. After several weeks of treatments approved by the Amish, such as home remedies, foot reflexology, and chiropractic adjustments, a Mennonite osteopath was called in. Dr. Elton Lehman reportedly found Eli in bed in a depressed and nervous state. Though Eli once again ignored his father's insistence that he come back home, Eli Sr. knew something needed to be done. With the doctor's help, he had Eli Jr. committed to a mental ward at a local hospital for three days. Upon release, Eli claimed he wanted to switch to Kime's Old Order Amish district. He attended church a few times, but his interest in conversation quickly waned. Soon, rumors swirled about Eli riding around in cars in Ashland with non-Amish friends. Eli lied about his activities anytime Haim would confront him. Eli's struggles with mental health were becoming obvious to the Kimes and some of their visitors. As mentioned in Greg Olson's book, 24-year-old Amishman Joe Slabaugh tried to mentor Eli but perceived him as the kind of rowdy young troublemaker who became angry, even belligerent, whenever he was caught doing something he wasn't supposed to, especially if going to the bishop was threatened. In the summer of 1972, Eli's reputation finally caught up with him. The church expelled him and placed him under a ban. This meant he was excommunicated 
and subsequently shunned by everyone in his community. While this outcome may have been devastating both emotionally and financially to most other Amish, Eli saw it as being set free. While under the ban, Eli lived with two different New Order Amish families, dressed in English clothes, and bought a car. He also reportedly experimented with drugs and sexual acts with other young men. By the spring of 1975, Eli decided to return to the Amish. Many in the community assumed he had come back for Ida, who had dutifully waited for him. Before accepting him back into the community, Eli needed to make a confession to high-ranking church officials. Eli did so and was welcomed back to the community. He managed to land another teaching job and was given a room in a farmhouse, which belonged to one of Ida's cousins. Soon, Eli and Ida were back together, and the couple married on December 25, 1975. A few weeks later, Ida discovered she was pregnant. On September 7th, she gave birth to a blonde-haired, blue-eyed baby they named Danny Eli. With their own family forming, it was decided they would move off of Ida's cousin's farm and onto their own property. Eli bought a 95-acre farm in Dalton, a milestone that seemed to mark the start of an idyllic Amish life. When Danny was just six months old, Ida learned she was pregnant again. But, as author Greg Olson remarks, to Eli Stutzman, another baby would not have been seen as a joy, but another impediment to his freedom, another nail in the coffin. A couple of years into owning the farm, the unthinkable happened. On July 11, 1975, a mysterious barn fire ignited on the Stutzman's property. It started sometime around midnight, with flames engulfing a stable full of farming equipment and supplies. The blaze also consumed a nearby milk house. Apart from the loss of property, while eight months pregnant with their second child, Ida Stutzman was found dead, lying just a few feet away from the milk house. By the time emergency personnel arrived, it was too late. The 26-year-old was pronounced dead on arrival at Dunlap Memorial Hospital, and her unborn child did not survive. By Eli's account, lightning had struck the barn and caused the fire. He also told the town doctor that Ida had suffered a heart attack. But Dr. Lehman had been Ida's doctor since childhood, and he knew she didn't have any kind of heart condition. Soon, Eli added new details to his account of events. He told neighbors that Ida had gone into the burning barn to save their farming tools. The community became suspicious and rumors began to circulate. The Amish don't believe in talking to law enforcement, since the church affirms that all interactions with non-Amish should be avoided. Because of this, the gossip about Ida's passing was contained within private conversations and no investigation into her death was ever opened. To those familiar with Eli, something certainly did not feel right about the alleged accident. People within the community wondered whether Eli had started the fire and trapped his wife inside the barn because he couldn't stand the thought of raising another child. Or, perhaps his time living amongst the English had turned him into an unabashed sinner. Regardless, Eli was not going to stick around his community for long. Less than a year after the barn fire, Eli left the Amish again. He and his son Danny moved around a lot before settling in Austin, Texas in 1984. Eli started a remodeling business there and also started living an openly gay lifestyle. A 24-year-old Montana native named Glenn Albert Pritchett moved in with Eli and Danny and another unknown man who was their roommate. It's uncertain if either man was romantically involved with Eli, but we do know that Pritchett worked in construction for Eli's remodeling company. In May of 1985, Glenn Pritchett went missing. An investigation led to the discovery of his body in a drainage ditch off of Colton Bluff Springs Road in southeast Travis County. Pritchett had been shot in the head once by a small-caliber pistol 
his body abandoned in a shallow, watery grave. The location of the body happened to be just a mile from a ranch where Eli boarded his horse. According to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, when Eli was initially questioned about his roommate, he told investigators he hadn't seen Pritchett in two months and assumed he had returned to Montana, where his family lived. Shortly after being interviewed by deputies, Eli and Danny left Austin. The father and son seemed to live life on the road for several months after the incident. In July, Eli inexplicably left 8-year-old Danny with a couple he knew in Lyman, Wyoming. The young boy remained under their care for almost six months. While apart from Danny, Eli relocated to Aztec, New Mexico, where he ran a cattle ranch. 45 minutes away in Durango, Colorado, the bodies of two men were found a month apart in November and December of 1985. David Tyler, 36, was co-owner of the Automatic Transmission Exchange, an auto repair shop in Durango. In November, his body was found near the shop in an open utility trailer. He had died from blunt force trauma to the head. The following month, Dennis Sleater, 24, was shot twice in the head during a robbery at Junction Creek Liquors, where he worked as a clerk. Investigators eventually made a connection between the two homicides when they discovered that Eli Stutzman was acquainted with both men. According to police reports mentioned in the Durango Herald, Eli and David Tyler may have attended the same party just two days before Tyler's death. Right away, Sergeant Anthony Archuleta from the Durango Police Department considered Eli a person of interest. He suspected the men were Eli's former lovers and their deaths were a result of relationships gone awry. But at the time, they had no evidence linking Eli to the crime. When questioned, Eli feigned ignorance and said he had never met the men. Having nothing solid on which to hold him, detectives had no choice but to let Eli go. Though Eli remained a free man, a pattern had emerged. Eli repeatedly came under suspicion for foul play, but always evaded charges. His freedom, however, was temporary, as Eli's luck would eventually run out, but it would come at the cost of another life. Eli returned to Wyoming in early December 1985 to retrieve his son. He told the unofficial foster parents that he and Danny would be traveling to Ohio to spend Christmas with family. Tragically, young Danny would never make it there. The small village of Chester, Nebraska, is situated at the junction of highways 8 and 81. It sits at the southeast corner of the state, right on the Nebraska-Kansas border. According to the town's website, there were 232 residents as of 2014. In the mid-1980s, though, the population was double what it is now. It was a frigid Christmas Eve in 1985. The wind chill of negative 40 made the negative 9-degree temperature feel especially brutal. After a slow morning walk, Chester resident Chuck Cleveland had made a pit stop at home. He had a passion for hunting and wanted to grab his shotgun in case he spotted pheasants on the way to an appointment to get his hair cut. As Cleveland traveled down U.S. Highway 81 snow-covered roads, he searched the sky for pheasants. At some point, something made him pull off the highway onto a dirt road. About a half a mile down, he saw the flash of something bright blue in a shallow ravine surrounded by overgrown weeds. After pulling over, he climbed out of his truck to take a closer look. Recounting what happened next to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, Cleveland said, I thought someone was playing a terrible joke. It looked like a mannequin from a store or a big baby doll laying in the weeds. I looked a little closer. Then it hit me. This was a child. Cleveland frantically notified authorities and soon Sheriff Gary Young appeared on the scene. It was immediately obvious the boy's body had been dumped there that he hadn't just been walking and succumbed to the bitter cold. This was Chester's first homicide in 15 years. Upon hearing the news, residents dealt with a range of emotions. It was absolutely terrifying to discover that such unimaginable violence had come to their peaceful little town. 
Sheriff Young had the difficulty of determining the cause of death. There were no obvious signs of blunt force trauma on the body. The only injuries present were marks on the boy's face, later revealed to be post-mortem rodent bites. Posters depicting a rough sketch of the child, accompanied by a description, were distributed around Chester and nearby Kansas towns, yet no one had the slightest idea who the boy was. Chester residents essentially decided to adopt the unidentified boy as one of their own. A roadside memorial was built and even rebuilt after a tornado had swept through the town. According to the Lincoln Journal Star, a sign beside the memorial read, The Small Town with the Big Heart. During the investigation, national newspapers referred to the victim as Little Boy Blue due to the pajamas he was found wearing. One woman in town donated a burial plot and a memorial service was held. 500 mourners from the surrounding areas attended, even though they were all still in the dark about what the boy's name was or who his parents were. The town took it upon themselves to give the child a name. They decided on Matthew, a name from the Bible that means gift of God. The boy was buried wearing a donated suit, and a tombstone funded by residents read, Little Boy Blue, Abandoned, Found Near Chester, Nebraska, December 24, 1985. The name they had given him was engraved, but room was also left at the bottom of the stone in hopes of including his real name later on. It seemed absolutely impossible to figure out the boy's identity without also determining who had abandoned him. Thayer County Attorney Daniel Werner said to the Associated Press, Nobody wanted to think about this as anything but a simple tragedy. Without a criminal charge, they could believe whatever theory they felt best about. For two years, the abandoned boy's identity remained a mystery. Then, in December of 1987, an article about the mysterious case appeared in Reader's Digest. Suddenly, the cold case exploded. Calls to Sheriff Young began coming in shortly after the magazine was released. Readers in Ohio who knew Eli, along with the couple who had fostered Danny in Wyoming, expressed their concerns that the mystery boy was Danny Stutzman. The couple who fostered Danny sent the sheriff a letter along with a photograph that was taken the day Eli had picked up his son. And with that, the cold case now had several strong leads. Tests were performed, including a fingerprint analysis pulled from one of Danny's report cards, and they had a match. With the cooperation of interstate authorities, Thayer County detectives were able to track down Eli in Azle, Texas, located 15 miles north of Fort Worth. On December 14, 1987, Eli was arrested in his mobile home without incident. He had been living there since February of the previous year working as a self-employed carpenter. Without a cause of death for Danny, law enforcement was only able to charge Eli with felony child abuse. He was held briefly in Fort Worth jail before being extradited to Nebraska. Though Eli did not fight extradition, once he arrived in Nebraska, he refused to cooperate with investigators. Sheriff Young from Chester flew into Tarrant County in hopes of questioning Eli alongside Jack Wyant, a Nebraska State Patrol investigator. With no confession and no cause of death, murder charges would not stick. Can you imagine being in an airplane and noticing the wings look awfully close to the tips of the mountains you're flying over? In Wondery's new podcast, Against the Odds, Plane Crash in the Andes, terrified passengers actually lived this nightmare. A Uruguayan rugby team and their fans had been flying over the snowy peaks of the Andes Mountains when suddenly everything changed. The plane crashed and shockingly, 32 people survived, only to face an entirely new nightmare, trying to survive sub-zero temperatures and extremely thin air. At first, the survivors assumed they would be rescued, but as the days passed, hope dwindled. They realized that they were completely on their own in a landscape that was fighting against them with every second that passed. 
How in the world could these people survive without food, water, or clothing to keep them warm? With no means of contacting the outside world, this story is both unimaginable and triumphant. Hit the follow button on Against the Odds Plane Crash in the Andes right now because you have to hear how this story ends. Listen to Against the Odds on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Wondery, feel the story. My husband's career has led him to suffering from chronic back pain. Recently, he started using Papa and Barkley, which is an award-winning CBD solution for pain, stress, sleep, and everyday wellness. Every morning and every night before bed, he's been rubbing Papa and Barkley's CBD relief balm on his lower back. He not only feels more comfortable after using it, the scent of the CBD balm is soothing too. Unlike less effective CBD brands, Papa and Barkley's clean, chemical-free whole plant process is unmatched and results have been proven. 300 participants did an at-home use test of Papa and Barkley's CBD relief balm and 40% of them reported reduced daily discomfort in just a week of using the balm. My husband also carries with him every day Papa and Barkley's relief drops, which he puts right under his tongue for fast relief when he's feeling stressed. It's such a great alternative to popping a pill with potential unwanted short and long-term side effects. Papa and Barkley is on a mission to improve lives through CBD in its purest, cleanest form possible. Go to papaandbarkleycbd.com slash murderish for 20% off your first purchase. That's 20% off for new customers at papaandbarkleycbd.com slash murderish. A few weeks later, on January 11th, Eli had a change of tune. He entered a guilty plea to two misdemeanor charges for the unlawful disposal of a dead human body and for concealing the death. His sentencing hearing came just a few days later. The Kansas City Star commented on the case's resolution, saying, For some, an unsolved case of a boy without an identity would be easier to accept than the story investigators have uncovered. Of an Amish father turned modern-day carpenter who allegedly left his son to die in the middle of nowhere. The man who had been raised in an incredibly insular community, who had evaded prosecution for his suspected involvement in several other crimes, had found himself in the eye of a press storm. Judge Pat McArdle presided over the hearing. In speaking to the Lincoln Journal Star, he acknowledged the national fixation on Eli's case, though he was determined not to turn the hearing into a circus. To exemplify just how much interest the case had generated, he added, We had a schoolteacher ask if she could bring her whole class into the courtroom, and I said no. We've even had people call and ask how they could get on the jury. I've never been exposed to that before. As for Eli, he had continued to dodge detectives' questions or make any statements to the press. The only time the former Amishman would speak publicly about the case was in a Nebraska courtroom during his sentencing hearing. According to Eli, on the drive from Wyoming to Ohio, he tried to wake his son from a nap when he realized Danny had stopped breathing and had no pulse. He cited a respiratory illness caught while living in Wyoming as the cause of his son's death. As quoted in the Akron Beacon Journal, Eli told the judge, I had difficulty facing the fact that he had died. I couldn't figure out why. After several attempts to revive Danny, Eli said he sat by the road and prayed for hours before putting the boy's body in a ditch and covering it with snow. Eli testified, I decided to leave him and let God take care of him. When asked why he didn't seek medical attention or alert local authorities, Eli responded by saying, that's what I keep asking myself today. I wish now I would have. Despite Eli's statement, it's likely very few people, if anyone, believed his story. In reacting to Eli's testimony, author Greg Olson told the Akron Beacon Journal, Danny was nine. He knew full well that his father was on the run for the murder of Glenn Pritchett in Austin. Furthermore, he'd been around his father's drug use and promiscuity and there was no way Eli could return him to the Amish. He had to get rid of him. 
The judge sentenced Eli to 18 months in jail, which came as a great disappointment to mostly everyone who knew about this case, including Sheriff Young. He shared his reaction to Eli's sentence with the Akron Beacon Journal by saying, I really wasn't happy with it, but there's not much you can do. Though his short jail sentence seemed far too lenient, young Danny's case would serve as the catalyst for reopening other cases in which Eli was a suspect. Justice does not always come swiftly or at all, but Eli's life would only go downhill after this point. Although Chester townspeople were now better equipped to fill in the blanks about the case, it brought them little solace. Chuck Cleveland, the man who had first spotted Danny's body, told the Omaha World-Herald in 2007, there's still people stopping up there and leaving toys and stuff. Following his release from jail in Nebraska, Eli was extradited to Texas. The media attention on Danny's death had an unexpected impact. It prompted Travis County detectives to reopen the investigation into the murder of Glenn Pritchett. And this time, detectives gathered enough evidence to obtain an arrest warrant for Eli. The Fort Worth Star-Telegram asked Travis County Homicide Detective Gary Cutler how Eli had evaded arrest during the initial investigation in 1985. He responded by saying, He was definitely a person of interest. Obviously, when he fled, that threw even more suspicion on him. We just didn't have enough at the time to hold him. Unfortunately, it would take the death of Danny Stutzman for Eli to have to answer for Glenn Pritchett's murder. This time around, questioning Eli regarding Pritchett's murder was far more productive than it had been all those years ago. Eli admitted that he had lied in his previous statements when he claimed Pritchett had left for Montana months before his body was found. He also said he had overheard people arguing, followed by the sound of a gunshot the night of his roommate's disappearance. Further questioning prompted Eli to say that he had been in another room of the house the day before Pritchett disappeared when he heard him arguing with two friends. But the details Eli shared did not really hold much weight. By now, it was evident to investigators they were dealing with a compulsive liar who could not get his story straight. According to an article in the Austin American Statesman, during a pretrial hearing, Detective Wiggins testified about Eli's statements, saying, He said he heard a gunshot, but he didn't go into the other room to investigate. He said he never saw any of those people again. In July of 1989, more than four years after Glenn Pritchett's body had been found, Eli Stutzman went on trial for his murder. Because the use of DNA as an investigative tool was not an option for another decade, state prosecutors had little physical evidence linking Eli to the crime. Oddly enough, according to police testimony, the suspected murder weapon, a small-caliber pistol, had accidentally been destroyed by the Travis County Sheriff's Office. Eli's attorney, Connie Moore, said to the Associated Press the murder charge was based on a very weak circumstantial case. Detective Wiggins testified again at the trial about the inconsistencies in the defendant's statements, establishing Eli's word as unreliable. The detective also conveyed a tip received from one of Eli's neighbors at the time. The neighbor had reached out to Detective Wiggins during the initial investigation in 1987. As detailed in an Associated Press article, Eli's neighbor said that soon after Pritchett's body was found, Eli asked him if police could match a bullet with the weapon that fired it. The neighbor said yes, he believed they had that ability. The very next day, Eli had fled Austin with his son. The only arguments presented by the defense harped on the lack of physical evidence tying their client directly to the murder. There were no witnesses to take the stand. As quoted in the Austin American Statesman, Assistant DA Marianne Powers stated in closing arguments, We don't have one eyewitness to this. The only possible witness we might have is Danny Stutzman, and he's dead now. After five hours of deliberation, the jury had reached a verdict. They found Eli Stutzman guilty of intentional murder. 
For this charge, he faced five years of probation to life in prison. In a sentencing hearing on July 31, 1989, District Judge John Wisser would decide on a penalty that he believed fit the crime. Eli's criminal record would also factor into his decision. Eli Stutzman was sentenced to up to 40 years in prison. Because the murder had involved a deadly weapon, Texas state law at the time required at least one quarter of a sentence be served before a felon could be eligible for parole. For Eli, this amounted to a minimum of 10 years behind bars. Once again, state prosecutors were not satisfied with this outcome. Assistant DA Carla Garcia said to the Associated Press, This was a cold-blooded murder. She believed Eli deserved a life sentence because he showed no remorse and had implicated himself as Pritchett's killer by subsequently lying to acquaintances about his former roommate's whereabouts. Eli's defense team, however, intended to file an appeal. As quoted in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, Connie Moore said, We are still convinced that this man is being convicted for a crime he did not commit. Appeals were filed with the Third Court of Appeals and the Criminal Appeals Court of Texas, but were swiftly denied. From prison, Eli wrote letters to a handful of relatives and had very few visitors. He sent his cousin Daniel Stutzman updates about his life while incarcerated, and often quoted scripture. According to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, Daniel said, It was always the hope that he might confess. We didn't want to lose contact because writing him and still letting him know you loved him and keeping in touch was the only hope. Eli would only end up serving 13 years of his sentence before being paroled in March of 2002. He made Fort Worth his new home and lived in relative obscurity for several years while battling HIV. From a one-bedroom apartment at the courtyard on Calmont in West Fort Worth, Eli made a modest living by making leather goods that included Bible covers and wallets. Leather work was a skill that he picked up in prison. Though Eli developed some friendships with neighbors, his compulsive lying continued. One thing he did not hide was an addiction to crack cocaine. Neighbors noticed his apartment became a hangout for drug users and sex workers. Eli's apartment manager and friend, Gina Robinson, commented to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, I was having to come out here all hours of the night. He had more traffic than a freeway. The apartment manager was already fed up with his antics when a rent check bounced in January of 2007, at which point she gave Eli three days to vacate. During the late afternoon of January 31st, Michael D. Archangel entered the apartment, which he found unlocked. He'd been trying to reach Eli but had gotten no reply to calls or text messages. Inside, he found his friend motionless on the couch. Eli would soon be pronounced dead. The Fort Worth Medical Examiner's Office ruled Eli's death a suicide from self-inflicted injuries. No note was ever found. This led to some of Eli's friends suspecting foul play, citing blood found in the bathroom and hallway of the apartment as a sign that there had been a struggle. Sergeant J.D. Thornton from the Homicide Unit disagreed, especially after receiving the autopsy report and examining the scene. He told the Austin American Statesman, According to what the doctor told us, the wound itself would not have caused immediate unconsciousness, and it could have been several minutes before he was incapacitated. It appears he then lay down on the couch, covered himself with a blanket, and watched television until he died. In the days leading up to Eli's death, there had been signs that the 56-year-old had plans to take his own life. He had donated most of his belongings and given his most treasured possessions to friends. They would only get the full picture of Eli's criminal past after his death, though they struggled to believe the gentleman they knew had committed such terrible acts. Tim Garner, who took in Eli's dog after his neighbor's death, told the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, It's way shocking. How could something of this magnitude go like it has undetected? While Eli was mourned by those close to him, investigators grieved over the answers that died with him. Durango detectives still sought closure for the 1985 deaths 
of David Tyler and Dennis Sleater. They requested post-mortem DNA and fingerprint samples to see if Eli could finally be connected to the two cold cases. If a match could be made between Eli and evidence found at both crime scenes, it would verify a long-held theory by law enforcement agencies across three states that Eli had been a serial killer. But when comparing the samples from Eli to a bloody palm print found at the scene of Tyler's death, there was not a match. And no other useful evidence had been collected from Sleater's crime scene. Tips local investigators had received over the years had also proved to be dead ends. At the time of this recording, both cases remain unsolved. In addition, there has been no investigation into the suspicious death of Eli's late wife, Ida. Author Greg Olson's book, Abandoned Prayers, An Incredible True Story of Murder, Obsession, and Amish Secrets, was first published in 1990. When it was re-released in 2003, it became a New York Times bestseller. It remains the most comprehensive source on this case. In an interview with the Akron Beacon Journal, Olson shared his exasperation over unanswered questions. He said about Eli, I've always believed he was involved in those murders in Colorado, but I guess my greatest frustration in Stutzman's trail of death was the death of his wife Ida in Wayne County. I'm 100% certain that Eli killed Ida, and I think it could have easily been proved at trial. Just think, if Wayne County had done its job, it's likely that four other people would still be alive. Olson contends that if she was not Amish, there would have been a real investigation. When asked by Akron Beacon reporter why he felt so certain Eli had killed his wife, he responded, There was no way out of the Amish, no divorce. The Amish kept trying to help him with his mental problems, and he knew that he'd never be rid of their good intentions as long as he was tied to Ida. Killing her was his way out, no doubt about that. The true crime author also has a theory on why Eli received such lenient sentences for the crimes officials could prove he committed. Olson told the same publication, Stutzman was the consummate liar. His gentle facade made it easy for those to fall for him. The tortured former Amishman, no one could understand what he'd been through. He played on their sympathies and lied right to their faces. You have to wonder whether any of these tragedies would have happened if Eli had not been Amish. Perhaps the immense pressure to live his life a certain way became too much to bear, and he came to believe that getting rid of people was the only way that he could be free. Even so, the average human being could not fathom killing members of their own family, let alone your own child. Though we may never know what happened to Ida Stutzman, as those answers have long since been buried, perhaps the simplest explanation is likely true. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Don't forget to check out my other podcast, Judgy and Juryish. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like the show and have 60 seconds of free time, do me a huge favor and give Murderish a five-star rating and review in your favorite podcast app. Positive ratings and reviews help new listeners find the show, and I also love hearing from you guys. Also, follow me on Instagram at Murderish Podcast. It's my favorite place to engage with you guys. You can also find me on Twitter and Facebook. Check out Murderish.com if you want to buy Murderish t-shirts, face masks, coffee mugs, and more. If you want more Murderish content, go to Murderish.com and click the link to go behind the scenes and become a Patreon subscriber. Patreon subscribers get immediate access to bonus content, as well as other perks. Thank you to Vincent S. for becoming a Patreon subscriber. I really appreciate you. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John and Jessica Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music is by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Allison Schwartz. Stick around after the closing music and the ads to hear a list of sources used for this episode. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast does not make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish.
Sources for this episode include a February 7, 2007 print article by Elizabeth Aylin in the Omaha World Herald, a January 1, 2008 print article by Rick Arman in the Akron Beacon Journal, a February 19, 2007 print article by Rick Arman in the Akron Beacon Journal, a December 13, 1987 print article in the Marion Star by the Associated Press, an August 2, 1989 print article in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram by the Associated Press, a July 23, 1989 print article in the Sioux City Journal by the Associated Press, a February 4, 1989 print article in the Lincoln Star by the Associated Press, a February 25, 2007 print article in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram by Deanna Boyd, a February 3, 1989 print article by Berta Delgado in the Austin American Statesman, a November 28, 2019 article at Medium.com by Lisa Marie Fuqua, a July 22, 1989 print article by John Harris in the Austin American Statesman, a December 20, 1987 print article in the Kansas City Star by Rick Montgomery, a December 15, 1987 print article in the Akron Beacon Journal by Terry Oblander, an April 2007 article in the St. Martin's Press by Greg Olson, a December 4, 2015 article in the Durango Herald by Jessica Pace, a December 24, 1987 print article by Eric Sandstrom in the Akron Beacon Journal, a December 23, 1987 print article in the Lincoln Star Journal by Dean Terrell, a December 24, 2005 print article in the Lincoln Star Journal by Gwen Teakin, a December 24, 2005 print article in the Lincoln Star Journal by Gwen Teakin.